Well, I'm just going to begin by saying Happy Mother's Day. I love you, Mom. You're a wonderful mother. I love you, Jess. You're a wonderful wife and mother. God bless you and all who have given of themselves to fulfill the exalted calling of motherhood. Amen and amen. I know that may sound canned, it's not, but I understand it may sound that way, because this is a sermon on Isaiah 24, and there is absolutely no way to get from Isaiah 24 to Mother's Day, or from Mother's Day to Isaiah 24. Because Mother's Day is a celebration of the mother of the family, as well as motherhood, maternal bonds, and the influences of mothers in society. And Isaiah 24 is... Well, let's talk about what Isaiah 24 is. We're turning a corner in our year-long study of Isaiah. We've just completed the burden section, chapters 13 through 23, which involve a series of proclamations or burdens against various nations. The burden against Babylon, the burden against Moab, the burden against Damascus, even the burden against Jerusalem, called the Valley of Vision, chapter 22, verse 1. But it's a series of distinct prophecies directed to or against specific entities. One way to think about what begins in Isaiah 24 would be to call it the burden against the world. Because we're going global. If you can picture Isaiah holding a globe in his hand in 13 through 23, he's putting his finger on specific places, Babylon, Egypt, Moab. Arabia. But beginning in 24, he lifts it up and addresses the whole world. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. Chapters 24 through 27 are called by many scholars the little apocalypse of Isaiah. And let us think for a moment about the phrase little apocalypse. An apocalypse is the end of the world. We get the word from the final book of the Bible, Revelation, being the English translation of the Greek noun apocalypsis. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation, apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ. The word literally means unveiling, but because the unveiling of Jesus results in the end of the world, in English it just means the end of the world, And then, by extension, any comprehensive disaster, a nuclear apocalypse, an economic apocalypse, an environmental apocalypse. The point being, apocalypse, by definition, is a comprehensive disaster. So it's rather ironic to speak of a little apocalypse. Now, what they mean by little is that it's just four chapters long, whereas Revelation is 22 chapters long. Fair enough. But the world's no less destroyed in Isaiah's four chapters than it is in Revelation's 22. 
As you know, we're taking a year to go through the book of Isaiah. We're using Gleason Archer's outline as a roadmap. His title for chapter 24 is Universal Judgment for Universal Sin. And as a preacher, you look at that and go, well, this is going to be a fun one. I think I'll check Joel Osteen's stuff. See if he's got a way to brighten this up a bit. That is, of course, a joke. But seriously, there is no need to consult Joel Osteen. There is hope. There is redemption right here in Isaiah 24. We're still in the first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, being primarily about judgment. But as we've seen time and again, amidst the judgment, there is a remnant. A testament to the saving grace of God. And even in the midst of the worldwide devastation of Isaiah 24, they are there. Still, you better buckle up, because no matter how little an apocalypse is, it's still the end of the world. We'll begin by reading Isaiah 24. Then we'll step through it in more detail. Then we'll conclude with practical application, answering the question, what does the end of the world mean to you. So, here is Isaiah 24. Behold, the earth make the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away, the world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, desolation is left. And the gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land, among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs, glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined Ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously indeed. The treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. 
For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken, the earth is split open, the earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. The opening line sets the tone. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. It's going to be a rough ride. You have been warned. Verse 2 gives us an extended list of merisms, the figure of speech where opposites are stated to indicate totality, head to toe, stem to stern, first and last, beginning and end. It's a poetic way of saying everything, or in this instance, every one. As with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller, every sphere of life is covered. Spiritual, people and priest, domestic, master and servant, economic, buyer and seller. This is for every class, everyone, everywhere on the earth. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. Most translations read earth for land there. It's the same word in Hebrew, Eretz. It occurs 16 times in these 23 verses. The earth will be not just emptied and plundered, but entirely emptied, utterly plundered. This is wall to wall. There is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, for the Lord has spoken this word. 4 through 6. The earth mourns and fades away, the world languishes and fades away, the haughty people of the earth languish, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. The problem is sin, which affects everything. The people are fading away, but so is the land, the world. The curse has devoured the earth, but, verse 5, it's not the earth's fault. The earth is not the problem. The earth is defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. You'll note three different words there, laws, ordinance, and covenant. The word for law is the relatively familiar Torah, meaning doctrine or teaching. And there are several terms for God's rules of engagement with humanity. And there are instructive differences between them, but at this point it doesn't matter. Because they've broken all of them. Violated, defiled, missed the mark, fallen short in every instance. In verses 7 through 12, the imagery changes and a city comes into view. A city that is devastated 
and mourning. And I want to just rattle it off there, because in the underlying Hebrew there are 15 successive phrases, mostly of three words apiece, and they are intended to have a cumulative effect. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, desolation is left, and the gate is stricken with destruction. In a phrase, the party's over. Earth's rebel song is silenced. But in the quiet which succeeds it, a new song arises. And it is here the redeemed appear. The judgment is like a harvest with its beating and threshing. But the remnant are like gleanings, which remain afterward, verses 13 through 16. And they sing a different song. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing. For the majesty of the Lord they shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs, glory to the righteous." A couple of translation notes. In verses 14 and 15, most translations read from the west and into the east. From the sea and in the dawning light, or the literal Hebrew, conveying the meaning of west and east. Either way, the point is it's the whole world. Just as the destruction is comprehensive, so the redemption is comprehensive. Then the first line of verse 16, concluding glory to the righteous, would be better translated glory to the righteous one. The redeemed aren't singing about themselves. They're singing about the one who redeemed them. Glory to the righteous one. Continuing through the text, we come to the prophet's experience, and this is one of those instances where the transition occurs in the middle of a verse. As you may or may not be aware, (coughs) the verse divisions are not inspired. They were added in the 16th century, and for the most part they're helpful, but occasionally you hit a clunker. Uh, The first line of verse 16 concludes the preceding paragraph. The next line begins a new one, which concludes midway through verse 18. Another unfortunate verse division. But Isaiah says, I am ruined Ruined! Woe to me! Language reminiscent of his encounter with God in chapter 6. Woe to me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The language is similar, but the cause could not be more different. In chapter 6, it's in response to the holiness of God. In chapter 24, it's in response to the treachery of man. The sin and its judgment overwhelm him. Lesson for us, 
when we think we'd like to see this or that sin, or perhaps even the whole world judged. Be careful what you wish for. Isaiah said, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. It's a nightmare. Fear and pit and snare. Flee the fear and fall into the pit. Climb out of the pit and get caught in the snare. There is no escape. In verse 16, there's a remarkable grammatical structure. The word bagad, B-G-D root, bagad, occurs five times in a row. The essential idea is unfaithfulness, betrayal, treachery. The Hebrew reads bogadim bagadu, ubegid bogadim bagadu. The ESV renders, the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. The NIV, the treacherous betray. With treachery, the treacherous betray. The NET, deceivers deceive. With deception, deceivers deceive. I'm not aware of a structure like this anywhere else in the Bible. The same word, five times in a row. Obviously, it's a form of emphasis... And equally, obviously, what's being emphasized is bagad, treachery, betrayal. To Isaiah, it appears to be their signature sin. We usually think of the primary sin as pride, and perhaps it is. But upon reflection, treachery, betrayal, infidelity has got to be a close second, if second, It involves deceit in a profoundly personal way. The double cross, the stab in the back. The antithesis of honesty, integrity, and faithfulness. The word gets a lot of play in the book of Proverbs, where it's usually translated unfaithful. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful, the bagad, will destroy them. 11.3 A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful, the bagad, feeds on violence. 13.2 The adulteress lies as in wait for a victim. She increases the bagad among men. 23.28 The iconic TV series Survivor could just as easily be titled The Bagad. The Treacherous the unfaithful, the betrayer. Well, midway through verse 18, we transition to the proximate means of their judgment. The fear and the pit and the snare are poetic, metaphorical. On the ground, in reality, the world is going to end. The physical earth, the stage on which they've performed their bagad, the place they've sung their songs and danced their dances, 
is literally going to disintegrate. The world is going to end. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken, the earth is split open, the earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. This is the end, the grand finale. Fat lady's going to sing, the big curtain's coming down. It is the end of the world. You know what we say to put tough circumstances in perspective? You know what we say. It's not the end of the world. Well, this is the end of the world. Verse 21, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as the prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before the elders gloriously. The last verse may sound a little downbeat with the moon disgraced and the sun ashamed, but this is where it helps to know the Bible's lingo, be familiar with its stock imagery. This is the end of the world. Universal judgment on universal sin. It's as big and as bad as it can be. Yet there is redemption. There is hope. We're in the apocalypse zone here, and the sun and the moon are stock players in the cataclysmic judgment to come. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine. I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, Revelation 6.12. Stock players in the cataclysmic judgment and in the glory forever after. And the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, Revelation 21, verse 10. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, verse 21. In our journey through Isaiah, Lord willing, round about November, we'll get to chapter 60, where he will tell us the same thing. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Verse 19. So in Isaiah 24, 23, the, sh- uh, the shame of the sun and the disgrace of the moon are not a bad thing. Lift up your heads, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Now we really are going to talk about what the end of the world means to you, but there's an unrelated point I want to make first, which has to do with the punishment of the host of exalted ones, verses 21 and 22. 
It shall come to pass on that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. If you have listened to me for a long time, you'll be aware at some level that my preaching has assumed a broader dimension in recent years, which has to do with an expanded awareness of what are called in Ephesians 6, the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, in simple terms, fallen angels. I don't think it's possible to biblically believe in Jesus without believing in the devil. And from the beginning of my Christian life, 40-some years ago, I have certainly been aware of him. Speaking more precisely, I was aware of him before I was a Christian. Fleeing him was no small part of me becoming a Christian. But only in recent years have I become aware of them and the significant role they play in the biblical story. I'm not going to harp on this. I just want to point out the clear, almost casual mention of them here. Because for a variety of reasons, there's a lot of Christian traditions and Christians who just don't want to go there. For one reason or another, would prefer to minimize or ignore these entities. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. I don't think the truth could be stated more precisely than that. I agree 100%. And I suspect those who don't want to go there are defending against what they regard as an excessive and unhealthy interest. Well, amen, I don't want an excessive and unhealthy interest, but I do want an appropriate biblical interest. We better put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Better take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So I want an appropriate biblical interest, and I'm not bringing them up. God is. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. So I'm just pointing that out to raise your awareness. So as you continue to feed on the word, your antenna are up, and you may notice them in places where you had no idea they were. Enough said about that. So let's talk about the end of the world and what it means to you. The end of the world is dreadful, horrible, catastrophic, <coughs> apocalyptic. Can you imagine anything worse than the end of the world? Actually, you can. I'll show you what I mean after this caveat. Let us acknowledge the literal end of the world, which is coming, will be dreadful and horrible beyond imagination. We're in Isaiah. He's very artistic. Let's think about his language, because, yes, it's poetic to describe the earth reeling to and fro like a drunkard, tottering like a hut. Almost sounds comic, but it isn't comic. 
because a reality underlies that poetic description. What must actually, physically be occurring for the earth to appear to reel to and fro like a drunkard? Verse 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. What does it mean for the solid ground under your feet to become distorted? Verse 19 isn't very poetic. reads more like an eyewitness report. The earth is violently broken, split open, shaken exceedingly. In Revelation 6, the Lamb opens the seven-sealed scroll, one seal at a time. And when he opens the sixth, verse 12, behold, there is a great earthquake. The Greek word translated earthquake is seismos, comes into English as seismic. The Greek word translated great is megas, gives us the prefix mega. When he opens the sixth seal, there is megas seismos, mega seismic activity, a great earthquake. And every mountain and island is moved out of its place. The devastation, the horror, the destruction will be beyond anything that has ever happened. It is real and it is coming. And God forbid we speak lightly of it. That is the caveat. Now, Let us turn to the thing that you can imagine which is worse than the end of the world. Perhaps I should phrase it this way. To the thing it is more difficult for you to imagine than to imagine the end of the world. It is more difficult for you to imagine the end of you than it is to imagine the end of the world. I'll flip that around and state it this way. It is easier for you to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of you. This is not hard to understand. There's you and there is it. You, individual cognizant you, in here, and it, the world, out there. It is the environment you exist in. It is the stage you perform on. I've already drawn on the image of the world as a stage. All the world's a stage. You can quote that. The point is, you have a gut sense, intuitive knowledge that you will outlast it. Consider the phrase, I thought it was the end of the world. Anytime, anywhere. Anything unusual happens out there, earthquake, hurricane, volcano, tornado, flood, sinkhole, whatever, anytime it wobbles somehow, our instinctive response is to think it's the end of the world. Look up any news report on any disaster in virtually every one you'll find near the lead, often in the headline, the statement from a witness, say it with me, I thought it was the end of the world. It's like an unwritten rule of journalism. 
Cover in an earthquake, make sure you get the end of the world quote. Tornado ripped through the trailer park, let's lead with an end of the world quote. Donald Trump is still president, it's time for the end of the world quote. Now that may seem like a mindless cliche, like I lost my cell phone and I thought it was the end of the world. And at one level it is a mindless cliche. But there is something very deep, very profound underlying it. The intuitive, God-given knowledge that in a very real sense, you are more important than it. You are more lasting than it. It's not that you won't die, you will, probably. But death is not the end of you. It's the transition from the seen to the unseen. From the temporal to the eternal. C.S. Lewis put his finger on this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing, he said, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, and here I'll add, the world, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortals' horrors or everlasting splendors. So what does the end of the world mean to you? It means, or should mean, context. Perspective. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, would you help us conduct ourselves in light of your word, your truth. God, it's your world. You set it up and you are going to knock it down your way and in your time. But Lord, we know, we recognize that's not the end of us. It's just the end of it. May we conduct ourselves in light of that as your children here and now, for the blessing of others here and now, and our great benefit there and then. In Jesus' name, amen.